Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine's podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Into Security, the Info Security Magazine podcast. My name's Dan Raywood. And Michael Hill here as well, editor. Uh, delighted you can join us for yeah, our latest episode in our podcast series. So I'm going to kick things off with our first bit of news, as usual. Uh, so the first one I want to bring to you comes from Trend Micro. Now, they actually uh, released some, some data that they had blocked uh, tw- almost 28 billion cyber threats in the first half of this year. Uh, drilling down into those findings a little bit more, they said that they blocked nearly 9 million COVID-related threats in the first half of the year, the vast majority of which were email-born. And this was kind of released in its mid-year roundup report. So as I say, just under 9 million cyber threats were found leveraging the virus as a lure, or at least a theme for attacks. And 92% of those were delivered by spam emails. Now, that sounds like a lot, but just reading the findings a bit further, Trend Micro did say that figure represents less than 1% of the total of 27.8 billion threats that the vendor blocked in the first six months of the year. Now, that chimes with data that we've seen already from the likes of Microsoft, which kind of suggests that cyber criminals are, are merely repurposing existing campaigns to take advantage of the COVID pandemic. Maybe suggesting that as such, the pandemic itself has not prompted a, a rise in overall cybercrime levels, despite obviously we've seen a, at least a notable turn to kind of leverage the health crisis. However, the data from Trend Micro does show that email remains the number one threat vector. As I said, 93% of total blocked threats were heading for users' inboxes. As part of that trend, business email compromise detections increased by 19% from the second half of last year. This is due in part to scammers trying to capitalise on distracted home workers, of course, who may be more exposed to social engineering and less able, perhaps, to check with colleagues if a money transfer request is legitimate or not. The report there from Trend Micro also found that ransomware is another serious cyber threat as always carried an email trend micro claimed that although the volume of detected threats decreased it saw a 45 percent increase in new ransomware families compared to the same time last year just to just finish up here the report also detailed a 16 percent increase in vulnerabilities disclosed in industrial control systems compared to the first half of 2019 so obviously that that headline figure there Dan, of you know, just under 28 billion cyber threats in the first half of the year. Seems a huge number when you scale that down to look at nearly 9 million COVID-related threats. But interesting to see that that makes up less than 1% of the total cyber threats that Trend Micro have blocked in the first half of the year. I mean, just to me personally, you know, it just seems obscene numbers, really, you know, 28 billion cyber threats in, in six months. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I was just just reading the story um, myself, and I was just reading that those numbers, and it's you do think yeah, you know, less than one percent of the total um, threats that they've blocked, which is twenty seven point eight billion, which is really quite an incomprehensible number to have to consider actually that that, that COVID related threats were uh, you know only accounted for that many, yet we still see so many reports and research claimings around COVID related threats, which is uh, which is quite incredible really that it accounts for such a little amount, but also you know not eight point eight million is which what they came up with Trend Micro just under. 9 million that's just that's not to be sniffed at that's quite a huge number so uh yeah good work on, on trend micro on, on bringing that one out and speaking of well of incidents and being able to deal with these issues we uh the second story 
story we'll cover today then comes from some research we covered on InfoSecurity from uh, Immersive Labs. Um, they did some research of 402 organizations and found only 2% have run incident response scenarios in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. There are quite a lot of stats they came out with, including that 40% of organizations of the 402 they surveyed were not fully confident in their team's training to handle a data breach if one occurred. And uh, 65% only consist of reviewing PowerPoint slides. It was a few sort of statistics in this. So we, we went to um, some industry speakers and one who, if you listen to our webinars regularly, you might recognize the name of Heath Renfro. Heath is a director and virtual CISO, or VCSO, is basically his job title. At the Crypsis Group, they might be familiar. They were acquired this week, announced intention to acquire by Palo Alto Network. So congratulations to, to them. You can read that story on Info Security. Um, but he said to us that instant response is one of the pillars of a sound information security program and needs to be taken more seriously, not just among the uh, InfoSec team, but all the way to the CEO and the board of directors. His quotes are in our stories, which we ran a couple of, uh, of stories, one sort of just the news and one a bit more of analysis. And he's featured in that. But he said it's evidence that we can assist that instant response is viewed strictly as an IT security or information security responsibility rather than from an overall business perspective. It's this problem that security is not seen as a business issue throughout affecting the whole business, which of course it is. And then he said this is unfortunate because many across the business, from leadership to legal, communications and HR, have a potential role to play. He said that to build stronger programs, incident response plans and playbooks should be developed and exercised at a broad company level. He also recommended identifying a champion in the executive ranks, someone who's a, an advocate of cybersecurity, who is influential among leadership and who can sit down with inside or outside uh, legal counsel and discuss the scenarios a company could face from a range of cyber attacks. And he said, with that in mind, security teams can work with their champion to get executive leadership educated on those risks and brought into an incident response tabletop exercise. A couple of more statistics from Immersive Labs there, 40% of security leaders surveys said that the last exercise they did generated no action from the business. Now, of course, that does lend itself to the whole problem of cybersecurity being defending against something that might not happen, which is we could go down a rabbit hole of discussion of cyber insurance on that. But yeah, you're defending against something that may happen now. Chances are it probably would happen because... You know even if it's just general general scans of the internet for open ports, then that could be something that happens. But statistics show a quarter of organizations ran crisis exercises without senior cybersecurity leadership in attendance. And Heath Renfro, once again, he said that, you know, he talks about all these different functions that should be involved. And he said the exercises do truly do open the eyes of executive leadership. So I said, there's a couple of articles we did on this in InfoSecurity. And another person we spoke to was Joseph Carson. He's chief security scientist and advisory CISO at, uh, I think they called Psychotic or psychotic, I never quite understood. Thanks to, please correct me on that one. Um, and they explained the current remote working climate is a great time to test your incident response and business reliance. Uh, he recommended taking advantage of this time to test your process and procedures as it will provide you with a more realistic scenario of a real cyber incident. We talked to a few people about this. That the, the statistics I thought were very interesting, hence where we kind of turned a couple of pieces of editorial around because you're talking about the problems that probably every business is facing, that they've got a dispersed workforce. Another person we talked to, he talked about a situation he was doing an event assessment in, I think it was Washington, D.C., and the CISO was based in Phoenix, Arizona, which is quite a significant distance away and also different time zones. So all, all these kind of things do work out, but actually, maybe it's a time to consider that. I suppose a lot of businesses are looking at focus of where money is being spent now and how things are being organized and where the priorities are. But if it's about incident response scenarios, that might not be seen as such a huge priority. Ditto so IB cybersecurity spending, but of course businesses are probably more vulnerable than ever. Hence, you know, roll back to that. Is it nine million COVID nineteen related threats and twenty seven 
1.8 billion threats that Trend Micro mentioned, Michael, because it, it's a big issue and hopefully businesses can actually see this and realise that there's something they could be doing. Yeah, I think incident response has always been one of those things that, you know, before the pandemic, some organisations, you know, kind of struggled with doing that effectively. I think obviously the last six months has been such a such a unique, you know, situation. Some companies at least have kind of almost scrapped a lot of their security processes in-house and they've kind of sent their sent their staff away to work remotely sometimes on new laptops sometimes even on their own personal laptops just so they can just kind of function at least you know to keep the business wheels turning and that's in some regard completely disrupted some of the processes that companies have been used to particularly internally and like you say right now okay I guess that the dust has settled a fair bit companies should be coming to terms with things now but you know how high a priority is it going to be for some organizations that are struggling to kind of set aside budget and, and and time to do an instant response practice, if you like. And like you say, you know, you're practicing for something which may not happen. But you can see the thinking there. You can kind of understand it, why why companies are perhaps not doing it. But yeah, like you say, I mean, I think, you know, the experts that we speak to and everything that we see, you know, all the data and, and the research reports that get released is, is such an important thing, having that kind of tried and tested incident response to see, you know, what you're capable of and where you've got all your gaps and, and what you can do should, you know, I think it's too, it's, it's too late to turn around and, and, and try and do it. Once you are kind of dealing with a real incident, it's, uh, I think you're always going to be fighting a losing battle there. So, yeah, like I say, interesting findings to come out recently. Another piece of news I want to just quickly run over, again, some interesting research, and this one came from Avast. Now, they actually shared some data on two uh, security flaws found in two popular set-top boxes that are exposing customers to attack. Now, these were two models, one from Thompson and one from Philips. And according to Avast, the devices contain vulnerabilities that can allow them to be accessed remotely by malicious actors who can then launch botnet and ransomware attacks. The internet-connected set-top boxes are often purchased by consumers who have television sets that do not support DVB-T2, the most up-to-date digital signal for terrestrial television. The investigators on this one found that both the uh, devices are shipped by the manufacturers with open telnet ports an unencrypted protocol for uh, use for communicating with remote devices or servers. Now, this could allow cyber criminals to launch attacks such as DDoS using botnets with the Avast team successfully executing the binary of the Mirai botnet, remember that, <laughs> to both devices. Another issue that Avast uh, flagged is that the privileged program Lennox kernel 3.10.23 installed on both boxes in 2016 to allocate sufficient resources to the software to enable it to run was only supported with patches for bugs and vulnerabilities until November 2017. Users have therefore not received security updates since that time. Avast also noted that they believe an unencrypted connection between the devices and a pre-installed legacy application of the popular weather forecasting service AccuWeather could enable malicious actors to modify the content users see on their TV when using this app. This could potentially lead to ransom messages being displayed, claiming that the user's TV has been hijacked and obviously, as we always see, demanding a sum to free it up. Interesting findings there, there then from Avast. <coughs> I mean, a, a lot of people kind of at home more, watching TV more. So um, always interesting to, to, to see this research about, you know, these vulnerabilities in readily available and, and no doubt widely used IoT devices such as, you know, TV set-top boxes. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly read this as well. And yeah, some really good research there by, by Avast. I mean, we'll, we'll come a bit later on as we, as we 
come towards the end of the podcast about uh, vulnerabilities in devices. But it was interesting, yeah, you mentioned Mirai. Um, yeah, Mirai executed the binary of the Mirai botnet to both devices. It's interesting. I'm just reading something when that, that course was was released to open source that, that code. And that they're actually using it, which, which is absolutely fantastic. That it's actually being used for, for good. So just our sort of fourth regular story then coming up, which is where's from more research, actually. This is by Risk-Based Security. And we, we ran this on Info Security in the last couple of weeks. This one created a little bit of a stir because they claimed that uh, reported data breaches are down 52% year on year. This is according to the first half of 2020. They said the number of records exposed is more than four times higher than any previously reported time period, that 52% were down year on year. Now, to give you some, some numbers there, they said there were 2,037 publicly reported breaches uh, to June the 30th. Now, this was 52% down on the first six months of 2019, so you know, year on year comparison, and 19% below the same time for 2018. So it, it's significantly fewer numbers, as it were. By mid-year 2019, there were 4,298, that's versus 2,037. So you can see where the numbers are, that's the number of breaches reported. In terms of what the data breaches uh, were about or what caused them, they said the main cause were misconfigured databases and services. They said over 27 billion records were exposed between January 1st of 2020 and June 30th. It's seen the no- number of records exposed during all of 2019 by more than 12 billion records. So in the first six months of 2020, there were more records breached than in the entirety of last year. Just sort of backing onto that was actually some research we got from CI Security, specifically looking at the US Department of Health and Human Services, where they found that healthcare breach reports uh, in the first half of 2020, uh, so specifically the healthcare, were down 10%. This is compared also, again, to the first half, so the second half of 2019. Lots of numbers, but the number of breach records fell by number eight, by 83%. So things seem to be going in the right direction when it comes to uh, data breaches. So we thought, well, let's talk to a couple of people we know. And we talked to Troy Hunt, who uh, runs the website Have I Been Pwned, which is, you obviously don't come across that, a very, very good resource of data breaches and where your data has been used or certainly where it's been breached. And so I dropped him a message saying, what do you think of these statistics? And he said, we only ever know about the tip of the data breach iceberg and there's frequently a long lead time between breach and discovery. Of course, there is. You can look at the Verizon report for sometimes months before things are actually detected. Depending on how you measure it, I'm sure one could easily show the trend going the other way too. Uh, he cited a couple of breaches that he had put in over the case of July and August, but usually he does it every four days, but added 16 in a two-week period recently. So there is maybe the second half of 2020 is going to sort of put the numbers back up to be a bit more equal with 2019. Uh, we also talked to Stephen Furnell. He's now the Professor of Cybersecurity at the University of Nottingham. Congratulations on the new job, Steve. Uh, he's just moved from Plymouth University. And he said his instinct was that we're not ne- necessarily seeing a decrease of breach events, but more likely that attention has been distracted by the pressing demands of COVID-19 and the transition to home working. He suspected that certain things are going to be more difficult to monitor and capture in the home working context. So a bit like Troy Hunt, he said things may not come to light as quickly, as clearly as they would otherwise have been the case. When we think about what we've covered this year, data breaches, I mean, it's one of those things we'll probably get to December and we'll start looking at what have been the most popular stories from across the year. I'm, I'm struggling to think of some really big data breach stories. I mean, the, when I was just writing this earlier on, like the ones that came to mind were Blackboard and Garmin. They've literally been the last two, six to eight weeks, really. We'll see what we have at the end of the year, but it's quite easy to see that actually maybe the number of data breaches has, has declined, but that might just be down to reporting, which 
lends itself to issues around GDPR, of course, uh, and things like that. But maybe, I don't know if we've talked quite a lot on info security about how the remote working situation has uh, obviously caused by COVID-19 has impacted the way businesses work. We've talked about the security aspects, but is this the next stage? It's going to be that things actually seem to be improving, but all of a sudden the second half gets a whole lot worse. I think there's two key pieces there, like covid and the GDPR angle, and don't forget we're looking at you know re- reported breaches here. You know the first thing that kind of that kind of stuck out to me, aside from pandemic and yeah, attention maybe being you know drawn to other things in the in, you know the first half of this year, is just kind of you know we've been reporting on the GDPR angle and almost kind of a bit of a feeling kind of growing of you know it, it's almost not not becoming less important, but. I think, you know, when it obviously GDPR landed, it was obviously a huge thing. There was a huge build up. And I think there was, you know, it was kind of daily news. We were, you know, hearing about GDPR related incidents and, and, and issues. I just wonder whether that kind of reporting angle was kind of faded away a bit. You know, we, we've seen particularly, you know, looking at the UK here, obviously, we've had a handful of big intentions to, to fine announcements, which are still ongoing as far as I as far as I'm aware. The general kind of perception that I get is maybe that it hasn't been this kind of flood of uh, punishment and a, a flood of financial fines that, that people were expecting. And I don't know, maybe a bit of a, I don't want to say a damp squib, but yeah. it whether maybe people are just kind of, or, you know, organisations in general, maybe kind of this, you know, the reporting angle was kind of faded away a bit. I don't know. Um, it's just something to kind of think about that stood out to me. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I personally don't think cyber incidents are lessening. I think it's just a reporting angle. And I think there's probably a few a few reasons impacting that, particularly this year. But we'll keep an eye on it and see, and see how it goes. OK, so coming away from some of the more uh, traditional news stories then, uh, we just want to bring you a couple of the more uh, unusual and well, quite, quite humorous pieces of research and we've come across really in the last few weeks and the first one's a bit of a fishy tale from me from israel now this is the story that israel national cyber directorate has recruited several dozen fish to help defend the country's water infrastructure from cyber threats now the directorate took over responsibility for protecting the nation's water system after cyber attackers hit israel water authority facilities earlier this year so in, in a series of incidents that occurred in April, irregularity due to an unplanned change in data was recorded at one facility. Elsewhere, a pump was hacked to go into continuous operation, which had to be placed under manual control. At one site, threat actors altered the settings of the facility's operating system, while at another, they managed to gain control of the entire system. So an anonymous Western intelligence officer told the Financial Times in June that the attackers had unsuccessfully tried to increase the level of chlorine in Israel's water supply. Commenting on the scale of the attack, head of the National Cyber Directorate, uh, Yigal Unman, said if the bad guys had succeeded in their plot, we would now be facing in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, very big damage to the civilian population and a lack of water and perhaps even worse than that. Well, on July 13th, a report from Channel 12, actually that's over in Israel or perhaps in the States, I'm not, not, not sure what that is, Channel, Channel 12, uh, revealed that in the wake of the cyber assault, Fish had been hired to add the finishing touch, if you don't mind the pun, to Israel's already advanced water monitoring system. So they hired, well, I say hired, they brought in fish of various sizes who have been put to work in a dozen aquariums filled with drinking water that are located at the Eshkol Water Purification Site in Beersheba. Now, that they act as bioindicators, providing an early warning system by reacting to potentially harmful changes in the water. Water quality engineers use uh, security cameras to monitor the fish around the clock, looking out 
out for any changes in their swimming patterns. Apparently, uh, <laughs> the little ones react faster to changes in the water and the bigger fish react to build-up effects in the water quality over time. That was according to a water quality engineer speaking to Channel 12. The control room watches them all the time. Are they swimming faster or slower? She's reported to have added. So the fishing business is kind of reminiscent of how canaries were once used in coal mines to monitor uh, carbon dioxide levels, I guess. But interesting that, you know, they're being used as a novel form of cybersecurity, I guess. It's an interesting piece that stood out to me anyway. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting one. You know, how, how do you detect change in an environment or whatever? And actually, yeah, using fish is maybe not the most traditional way of doing things. But yeah, it's, I mean, I think in the original report there, which we covered in our next print issue, we mentioned about that. I thought the canary uh, in the in the coal mine concept of, you know, if, if this behaves differently, should we say, I don't want to say dies, but, you know, if it behaves differently, then that's the indicator of where it is. So I thought that was, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting way of doing things. And it's certainly kind of a, a probably a low cost way of doing it. And also, I'm not saying gives the fish jobs because that's a ridiculous thing to say, but you know what I mean. Um, so just our last story for this this month for this month's podcast. Just going back to what we were talking about earlier on with the vulnerabilities around the set top boxes. As I said, you know, we, we see pen testers, and I'm sure it was the sort of the test the researchers that have asked in that case. We see pen testers do some really interesting research, and I think uh, that, that obviously the things they do are, can be really really groundbreaking sometimes. And one of the best companies out there for doing really groundbreaking research has been Pentest Partners, uh, led of course by Ken Monroe, who's a bit of a bit of a conference hero. We see him around a lot, of speaking a lot of events. One of the things he did in the, in the past was a Kayla doll k-a-y-l-a which was a doll where he was able to i think it was controlled by a bluetooth via an app and he was able to intercept the app and, and the bluetooth connection to make the kayla doll so i think it's the lines from spider-man or maybe something a bit ruder i think it was to say swear words uh, i think actually they got it to do so it was child's toy wasn't it and they got it to, to swear and things do you know what I'm thinking of? Um, it was The Simpsons where they had the talking Manabu Stacy, and one of them had the wrong voice box in. It was saying, uh, you know, my spidey senses are tingling. And that's why I'm mixing it up. Which would have been funnier, actually, if Ken is listening. That would have been brilliant. If you could still do that, I would be massively, uh, well, I wouldn't be impressed. I think because I've just told you to do it. But also, I think it'd be a really interesting way to do things. Well, they've gone from, anyway, we've seen them do talks over the years about, you know, things like House of Devices to, I think, they did a boat one year at Info Security Europe. But this time, they've actually put a garage door. So you might think, why would you pick a garage door? Well, this was a smart garage door opener, which is probably kind of like a red rag to a ball for most pen tests when it said anything smart, because the researchers were able to do some work with this, and they found a local file inclusion vulnerability in this particular garage, which is the Remsol GoGoGate iSmartGate. They could, they could get this vulnerability because of, they could get it to play audio files. They were able to make it play several things, several different uh, tunes and stuff like that. And they noted the firmware was encrypted, debug access was restricted, the web server wasn't running as root, you had unique passwords per device, but they still managed to find a way in, allowing us to open all the garage doors. Now, they picked this one because it promised integration with common smart speakers and home kit and full remote access. Uh, it's designed to connect to Wi-Fi and can be accessed through a mo browser, mobile app, or remote either Google Home or the uh, Alexa concept. Well, what did they actually do? Well, they, of course, they made it to make a, so it's quite a flatulent noise. I think we're all adults, we can call it a fart, but they managed to make a garage door make this farting noise. Is it open? You might think, why would you do that? Well, I think most pen testers are a bit like, you know, a bit like mountain climbers to say, why not? Why not try that? If you're going to pick it, you can get it to play some Taylor Swift. You can make it play a, a Spider-Man theme. Let's just pick that now. It's on the theme. No, they picked a farting noise, probably just to embarrass it. What they did actually do was disclose it, as, as they did. It was disclosed on, originally on April the 8th, and then they pushed them again on April the 30th, and they received a, a reply within 20 minutes. A new firmware to the fixed floor was available the next day. It's absolutely fantastic work by um, not only pen test partners, but also by uh, Remsol GoGoGates on their iSmart 
okay, to fix this within uh, 20 minutes and then 24 hours to actually push the fix out. So we could just say in a year dominated by Trump, people, the English people will get the joke. Uh, here's another example of connected devices being hijacked to prove why the vendor you know, it should do code review. It's very easy to say after the event that these things, should, you know, should have been done. It, these things miss, things don't happen. By the sound of it, it was pretty secure. It's just very, very skilled pentest has found a way and hopefully now it will be secure in the future. But, you know, be aware of IoT. They can always be slightly troublesome. Mm. I do always like hearing the uh, research that comes out of pentest partners. They do do uh, some great stuff. Farting garage door, why not? Well, whatever next, I don't, don't think I want to know, to be honest with you. Um, right, OK, so just to wrap up then, we'll just quickly leave you with a couple of the things that's keeping us busy at the moment and you can access some info security. So uh, our Q3 print issue is now out. Obviously, if, if you are one of the lucky subscribers that gets the print issue through the post, hopefully you've received that and you are enjoying it. And we'll have the digital version online very soon for those that don't get the physical print issue. Loads of great features in there. So uh, make sure you do check out that and also see if you can name any of the uh, stars who appear on our cover as well if you can name them all well we haven't got any prizes to no, one, congratulations you can name them all and uh, yeah i think we'll leave it at that yeah also coming up um on the uh 22nd and the 23rd of september is our probably our next big event which is our next online summit if you've been sort of listening to us for a while you know we do this twice a year it's it's essentially a series of i call it webinars essentially over a two-day period these ones we we curate ourselves there's no editorial team we, we moderate them all they're all done by michael and myself and also by eleanor and uh, our new colleague james and also we've got a couple of other people contributing as well some really really good names of people that you'll recognize in there but hopefully the subjects will be engaged too, and I'm just looking at the plan now. I'll pick a few of them, them out. Looking at the impact of COVID-19, a seam, uh, a big piece of the security puzzle. We're looking at startups in the spotlights and also the upskilling your security team. That's on the first day. The second day, we're looking at the concept of the modern CISO, uh, cyber insurance. We'll also be looking at mastering app security in the cloud and also the concept of authentication and uh, future-proofing authentication. So some really, really great content. If you haven't already checked out the website, then do look at it should be banners all over the front page to the online summit obviously you can't find us just some tweeters or emailers and we'll send you where you can register for all these content cpu credits are available throughout the whole two days and it's it's a real slog for us to do it and you know it, it is a lot of work but i generally quite enjoy it and uh, last time we did this michael was just after lockdown wasn't it we just it been about a week before we had yeah so it was our first experience of doing it entirely remotely and not being able to work together as a team physically but it went fine so yeah uh, like you say it's a really really great topic so there's 14 sessions to enjoy over the two days you can get yourself a bunch of cpe credits as well for the sessions so yeah make sure you do join us for that and you can register for that now on the website and you can find out more information on the website as well so do do check it out lovely but i think for then we'll bring this one to an end so do look out for the next issue and for the online summit and we'll speak to you next month Thank you for listening to Into Security, the Info Security Magazine podcast. You can find out more information on our news, articles and events at infosecuritymagazine.com.